Every year, tens of thousands of dogs, mostly beagles, are used as tools in deadly research experiments. Join me, your host, Ellie Hansen, as we dive into this issue and talk to all the awesome people out there trying to make a difference for these dogs. Best of all, find out what you can do to help. We're opening doors for discussion and shedding light on the facts. This is Dog Research Exposed. How far would you go to rescue dogs from a research laboratory? If you had proof from an insider in the laboratory about some horrible experiments being done on dogs and you were given all the clues and tools necessary to break into the laboratory, take the dogs, and whisk them away to a secret safe location to save their lives, could you do that? This may sound like a scenario in a suspenseful fiction movie, but it's actually the amazing true story of a woman who leads the Animal Liberation Front, a radical animal rights organization in North America in the 1980s. It is also the subject of the book Free the Animals, written by Ingrid Newkirk, president of PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. When I received an invitation to interview Ingrid about her book for this podcast, I was jumping around my house like a little girl who just got a new bike for her birthday. I had only five days to prepare for our interview, so I quickly purchased Free the Animals on Amazon and started reading it the minute it arrived. It took me just two days to read the book, all 400 pages of it. I simply couldn't put it down. I was mesmerized, inspired, thrilled, shocked, and on the edge of my seat the whole time. The book made me question everything about myself as a person and an animal rights activist. How far would I go to help dogs being cruelly experimented on? Above all, it made me think, what is our collective responsibility to stand up for what is right and just? What does it take to bring about change, even if it means putting ourselves out there, starting an uprising, and going outside our comfort zone? Ingrid Newkirk is one of these people whose heart for animals is as big as the universe itself. And I hope we can all gain strength and courage as we listen to her encouraging words in this episode of Dog Research Exposed. Free the Animals was first published in 1992, and that was 30 years ago. So what inspired you to re-release the book, and why now in 2022? Well, the first time I wrote it, I felt it was really important to record the history of what really broke open to the public, what was going on in the laboratories. People really didn't think there was anything they could do. They didn't know what was going on. They thought it was a few animals being treated very nicely to cure really important diseases. They had no idea it was a massive industry. And the same is true today. And people who were born 30 or 20 or 15 years ago often have no idea the Animal Liberation Front, that band of, of wonderful, committed individuals 
ever went in and got the animals out and got the video and the photographs out and were able to show people what was going on, rescue animals and stop some experiments in their tracks. Not all, but some. The stories you tell in Free the Animals take place in the 1980s. What can you say about the organization called the Animal Liberation Front in North America in the present day, if anything? Well, it basically doesn't exist in America because of improved security systems that didn't exist back then. Now you have face recognition, fingerprint recognition, CCTV, all these sorts of enhanced security measures that simply weren't there when these raids were carried out. You have a a guard, maybe armed guard or unarmed guard, patrolling the premises. You had maybe police car cruising by on the outside. Um, It was unlikely that there was much beyond that except uh, a burglar alarm. And the Animal Liberation Front people learned how to Uh, disconnect those, disconnect the wires on window alarms and so on. They use some pretty creative things for their time, but times change. You still hear of things happening in some parts of Europe with the Animal Liberation Front, but here it's definitely faded away. Actor Joaquin Phoenix has written the foreword for your book, and he now also owns the movie rights. So how did that relationship come about? And do you think that your book will become a movie one day? Well, I can only hope it becomes a movie. You know, Hollywood, you never know. But um, Joaquin is is just a super individual, as everyone knows, who cares about animals and maybe saw him on Oscar night devoting his entire speech time to his acceptance of the award to the plight of mother cows and their calves. Um, He could have said anything, but he decided, I need to make this point. The cheese on your pizza, that glass of milk, that slice of cheese, comes from a mother who loved her calf, and her calf was taken away from her, so you can have it. Please stop doing that. Um, He's appeared in many of our PETA commercials. He doesn't wear animals, in addition to not eating them. So he's appeared in a field with beautiful, wonderful sheep around him and shown our video taken undercover of how sheep do indeed suffer greatly, get cut to shreds sometimes when they're shorn and the other indignities that happen to them. Um, And he pretended to drown himself once in a tank of water to say, look, if you pull a fish out of their environment, this is what they experience. They're suffocating. Uh, he's been with us for many years. I have the utmost respect for him. And I think he lives a very ethical life, as indeed his whole family does. The whole Phoenix family is they're a role model of being kind to animals and everybody else. I actually rewatched his Oscar speech as I was reading the foreword for your book. And it's incredibly emotional. And he gets incredibly emotional. You could just see his passion for this cause coming through. He feels it in his heart. These aren't just words spoken by him. Uh, He sticks his neck out for animals. And in the foreword, he describes how he was down at an animal save demonstration. And he was so upset. He, He spoke to the stockyard owner, the slaughterhouse owner, 
and he managed to obtain a mother and her calf and rescue them. And of course, he laments that unless everybody else gets involved, you can save them. You don't have to physically go to a slaughterhouse, but you can physically save them by eating vegan cheese, vegan oat milk, almond milk, you know, all that sort of stuff. And please think of the mother cow and calf. So I, I think he's just the most ethical, kind, decent person. Joaquin Phoenix quotes John F. Kennedy in his foreword, saying, Those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. John F. Kennedy said this in a speech in 1962. What is your personal view on civil disobedience, and have you seen this method of activism succeed in long-term changes in the animal rights movement, especially as it pertains to animal experimentation? I think every social movement has a component of activism, which often includes civil disobedience. Certainly the women's movement, AIDS experiments when they first began, um, we had AIDS activists lying down in front of cars and blocking traffic in Washington, and it had a huge impact. And it, it has had an impact with animal rights. I mean, we've, for many years, we've demonstrated by lying down in front of originally fur stores, for example, or at the National Air and Space Museum to protest NASA sending monkeys into space. And that actually did work. I mean, that was part of a concerted program with multiple prongs of different kinds of pressure, but it definitely was a very useful, worthwhile one. And we've had people, you know, climb on the roofs and sit down in front of the buildings to stop animals being taken to the lab. And that has helped and that has worked too. So yes, I think it's one factor among many that has to be used in any social movement, animal rights included, experimentation certainly. The National Institutes of Health was, uh, and, and I talk about this in the book, uh, that the University of Pennsylvania was getting a boatload of money from the NIH to bash baboons' heads in an accelerating device. And um, the ALF went in and took out 70 hours of videotapes that the experimenters had shot themselves. I mean, since then, experimenters have been a bit cagey about shooting video because they know it could be obtained under the Freedom of Information Act. But the ALF brought out this video. They were almost caught, and I tell that story in the book. And they turned it over to Peter. And we then, 101 of us, when no action was forthcoming and the funds were still flowing to these baboon head crash experiments, we went into NIH, went up to the eighth floor of the funding building and locked ourselves in. And we were there for four days and four nights. Um, and as a result of that, which was all over the news, our sit-in of 101 people, uh, Margaret Heckler was the Secretary of Health and Human Services. She sent someone to get the tape from us and we showed it to her and she cut off all the funding for that experiment. So you were actually there yourself. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it was quite a time. The NIH tried to freeze us out by turning on the air conditioning so high um, that it was so uncomfortable. We had to wrap ourselves in curtains and rugs and everything else. And they, of course, we didn't have any food. 
And so we worked out a basket system down from the eighth floor to the ground to get food, and then they cut that off. <laughs> it was quite a time, but in the end, we won. Similar to that laboratory you're talking about with the baboon head bashing studies, some of these research laboratories that are uncovered by the ALF activists in your book remind me of stories I've researched about scientists conducting experiments in the 1800s, animals being experimented on without anesthesia, basic medical needs not being met, and scientists laughing and making fun of their animal subjects who are suffering. To be frank, I mean these types of experiments and things happened 200 years ago, and it's hard to fathom that this is still happening even today when we're supposed to be so concerned for animal welfare. And one of the stories you tell in your book involves the City of Hope, which is a medical research facility that used dogs to study cancer in the late 1970s and 80s. And they had a long history of negligence, including sloppy surgical procedures and failure to provide post-surgical care to sick and dying dogs. Dogs were routinely found dead in their runs after being left untreated and unattended. And this brings me to a recent 2022 undercover investigation PETA recently conducted at an animal research facility called Envigo. It sounds so similar to the City of Hope. Can you describe Envigo for those who might not know what they do and what PETA investigators found at Envigo in this investigation? And how is it possible that this type of animal cruelty is still going on today? I think the reasons it's going on is that it's not in front of your face. You, most people never go inside a lab. They never see what's happening. And the second thing is the big lie, which is, oh, 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 trust us. It's all for the good of humanity. It isn't. It's something like, I think it's $19 billion a year given out from NIH alone, taxpayer funds, to conduct animal experiments. We don't even have a cure for the common cold right now. The way we found um, an HIV drug or a combo of drugs that actually did some good was with high-speed computers programmed with human data and data from components of, of, of drugs. Um, this animal experimentation thing is a big business. There are people who supply cage washers, lab chow, decapitators, stereotaxic devices. It's an industry. And there are actually trade groups set up to push Congress never to look. And they'll say things like, it's science. You don't understand. It's science. It isn't. It's common sense that this is rubbish. We, we, we're in 2022. And we have all sorts of wonderful technology and state-of-the-art research methods. We have, everyone knows, organs on a chip. We have a human heart the size of your fingernail that you can do things on, a heartoid. I mean, we have gas chromatography, mass spectrometry. We have all this stuff that we can use. And yet this big business wants to keep churning around force feeding animals, um, putting electrodes in their heads, taking their babies away and putting them in psychiatric experiments, scaring them with rubber snakes and plastic um, spiders. I mean, absolute rubbish. 
So anyway, <laughs> this, in this Invigo place that you mentioned is a place that breeds thousands of beagles to churn them out and send them into laboratories everywhere. And it's in Virginia. We sent an undercover investigator inside. She worked there for several months. And in those several months, found 350 dogs and puppies, mostly puppies, died because they got fluid on the brain from improper breeding. They got their legs and their heads stuck in cage bars. They drowned in drainage ditches and so on. I mean, just total abject negligence, and that's not even getting to the part where they ship them off to the lab. We went to the USDA with our video, with our photographs, with our veterinary experts. The USDA went inside. They found immediately over 70 violations of the pathetically minimal Animal Welfare Act, and that takes some doing. Um, there have been many more violations since. This was 2021, October. And since then, we have worked with the Virginia legislature to try to stop this kind of activity. They've been wonderful. It's been a breakthrough. The Department of Justice has moved in. And I'm happy to say we've, had, we've taken out over 800 beagles to rehome, including this wonderful old man called Samson who had been eight years as a breeding male in that noisy, cement, filthy place. And he's so happy. He rolls in the grass. He sleeps on the couch. But when we got him out, he had a urinary tract infection. All his teeth were rotted out of his head because they just don't care. The U.S. Department of Agriculture has failed to suspend or revoke their license. If they'd done that simple thing, which they should have done, and which they have a mandate to uphold the law, these beagles would all be safe. But the place is going to close down. That's a fact. It, it will be over with. But it's just one skittle in the whole game. And everybody is needed to please go to peter.org, sign the petition, get involved, talk to your representative. The big thing is, we have got to get the research modernization deal to become something that NIH and these others use, which changes from using animals to using state-of-the-art methods. Your book takes aim at the U.S. National Institutes of Health in many of the stories. I can see why, because the NIH is the largest biomedical research organization in the world and also provides most of the funding for animal research, somewhere in the neighborhood of tens of billions of dollars per year. And in the stories in your book, the NIH is upset by the truth, uncovered by the ALF undercover investigators, and they actually try to derail some attempts to help the animals in labs, and in fact, go as far as to support the cruel experiments. Do you think the NIH has changed in the last 30 years in their views on animal experimentation? The NIH hasn't changed in the last 30 years. They're incredibly defensive. They don't wish anybody to encroach, to investigate them. They are above the law and they intimidate people. They know that they have got a huge bag of money there that they can dole out. So. 
experimenters are afraid to speak up quite often. But let me give you one example that just happened. And that is we have investigated the University of Washington where monkeys have died because they've been sent through burning cage washers, they've scalded to death. They've died because their watering devices broke and nobody cared to see day after day. They were dehydrating and they didn't have any water. They have died of diseases they never should have had. And we just exposed them for actually illegally importing monkeys and finding monkeys that had diseases already before they were put into experimentation. I mean, so many violations that your mind boggles, your head swirls with this information. Violation after violation after violation, year after year. NIH just awarded them all their millions of dollars to carry on doing exactly what they're doing. So NIH has a lot to account for. We all know, I mean, Fauci got into trouble. Dr. Fauci got into trouble for the Beagle experiments and the transgender experiments that he has authorized. Above him was, until very recently, his boss, Francis Collins. And Francis Collins hasn't met an animal he wouldn't want to experiment on or pay someone else to experiment on. That's just his modus operandi, his way of life. He is so in bed with every experimenter, you cannot get past the Francis Collins wall. He is out now and is an advisor, God help us all, to President Biden. They are looking for a new head of NIH. And we can only hope that they find somebody who isn't from the old boy network, from the old guard, who isn't one of these career animal experimenters, but somebody who cares about human health who cares about progress and modernization, and maybe, with a little luck, has some feelings for what these animals are put through when they're kept for year after year in a metal box that they can see out of called a cage. PETA scientists have been researching the utter failure of the animal experimentation paradigm to help humans suffering from disease in today's day and age. This truth now is widely accepted by scientists throughout the world that the animal experimentation paradigm just doesn't work. And so PETA has introduced a plan, the Research Modernization Deal. Can you tell us more about this deal and what we can do as listeners to help get this passed? Absolutely. Delighted to do that because... I think very few people have the opportunity to know that over 90% of the experiments conducted have nothing to do with human health at all. They're mostly psychology experiments. Um, They're mostly uh, just show and tell experiments. And sometimes they're experiments so absolutely absurd on their face. For example, one we're trying to stop now is called the forced swim test. And what you have is pharmaceutical companies getting ready to market an antidepressant. And so they force feed it to mice or hamsters or gerbils. And then they drop the animal into a glass-sided beaker of water from which they cannot escape. And the animals, these small animals, are swimming, swimming, swimming to try to stay afloat, not to drown. And if they've taken the antidepressant or been force-fed it, 
Um, maybe they'll swim longer, maybe they won't swim as long, maybe they'll swim the same amount of time. Let's put on a chart. And if they can find any correlation, they will use that to market their drug. I mean, this is such a cruel, hideous experiment, but that's what goes on, and that's what people should re remember. In one of the um, stories in the book, where we get a little dog called Vanguard out of the Navy lab in Bethesda, Maryland, where all the presidents go to get their physicals, that dog, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, 30-some years ago, was about to be decompressed. He was about to be deep-sea dived in a tank of water, and his spine would have been crushed to study the bends. That happened 30 years ago. 40 years before that it had been going on, no new, tr new treatments for the bends. We are now 30 years later. It's still going on with sheep this time, crushing their spines. No new treatment for the bends. So everybody needs to be disabused of the idea that they're really trying to find... No, they're not. They're using old Roman arena-style experiments that go nowhere. So 90% has nothing to do with cures. 95% of drugs that come on the market have failed in, in um, or, or excuse me, fail in human beings, but were successful in animals. And when the amount of litigation reaches a certain level, the drug company will take that drug off the market. And that's why you see all those things that say, warning, you know, side effects, anaphylactic shock, dizziness, and so on. But the research modernization deal is what we've got to have. And we've given it to every member of Congress. We've given it to parliaments overseas. The Dutch government is now implementing it. And what it has is a clear outline of the different types of experiments and in order of their least importance, you know, the ones that are totally frivolous at the top. And you can immediately get rid of them because you don't need them at all. You don't even need an alternative. And then under those are ones where there is a superior method to research that topic. And so you can substitute, maybe it's a three-dimensional virtual reality model. You know, who knows what it is, a supercomputer, could be an epidemiological trial, could be anything. But our map, the research modernization deal, just plots out bit by bit every single thing that you can, to the betterment of human health, do to replace the use of animals. And of course, with that, you just wipe out cruelty. We need everyone to push hard to go to their members of Congress and to write letters to the editor, to get in touch with us, to watch the video, to get hold of the research modernization deal, or just to say to your representatives and senators, please compel the NIH to modernize and look at the research modernization deal and implement it, and then everybody will be better off. So when we sign those petitions, and I sign those petitions as often as I can, does it really matter to the members of Congress or the person you're writing to? I know people sometimes wonder, is this worth my time? It depends. I'd say it's always better to do it than not do it, because it might. But superior to those things is writing an actual letter that lands on the congressman's lap 
that lands in the congresswoman's in tray, that they can see that someone took the time to write. And we have, you know, draft uh, text that anyone can use, and you can speak from your heart. But it's very important, if you are a constituent, to say that. I, I'm in your district, I'm your constituent, I vote, and I want you to support this, or I don't want you to support something else. But a letter is best, a visit would be wonderful. Get a friend who lives in the same district and just take that few hours, if you can, if they're seeing visitors, I mean, pandemic, some of them aren't still, but go and see them. If they do a town hall, go to it and stand up and ask the question. You know, it, you might be nervous, your knees might shake, but you're doing something wonderful because the animals can't stand up and do that. But yeah, letter best. Petition sometimes, it just depends, but it's certainly something. And a phone call, call the chief of staff and say, I have, I'm your constituent, Senator so-and-so's constituent. I have a point and I'd like to hear back from the senator. And if you're donating to them, of course, they will listen to you. Getting back to your book, there is a section of the book that has been sitting with me. The heroine and main character, Valerie, is sitting with her boyfriend in a restaurant one evening, enjoying a glass of wine. Valerie, who was once a police officer and is now an Animal Liberation Front organizer, is feeling guilty for being able to relax and enjoy herself with a glass of wine. She says to her boyfriend, who is now worried about her, I'm sorry, I'm having trouble seeing the world in the same way I used to. I've taken a peek behind the facade into a chamber of horrors. When I'm doing something to stop the pain for a few animals or for one animal, it's like getting a shot of anesthesia. But when I'm not helping, I feel lower than low. Can you relate to Valerie's emotional state here? And what would you have said to Valerie to help her move forward? I can relate to that emotional state because in my job and for many people, they see what's happening to animals. It isn't a fantasy. It isn't occasional. It's trucks on the way to slaughter. It's a baboon who's been sitting in the same cage on the same slats for many, many years and people mocking him or thrusting a monkey into or, or a mouse into a smoking chamber or into a plexiglass tube. You see those things, how can you? It's like going to war. How can you then just scrub them from your mind? And it's our species who is doing those things to those animals who've done nothing to us. They've never declared war on us. They've never taken us prisoner and injected things into us and slit our throats. So it is very hard sometimes to carry on, but I definitely feel, I would have said to Valerie, look, look at what has happened with the changes that have come about because you have acted. Other people have acted. We're a community. We may not even be physically linked, but we are all there as a community. And when we act, things have happened. Just look at how far we've come. And then, instead of looking at the enormity of things, just look at enough to keep yourself motivated and going and carve out something you can do 
and never undersell yourself because your voice is so important, your typing fingers are so important, your influence is so important. Even if, as people say to me, oh, nobody listens to me, oh, yes, they do. They squirrel away in the back of their heads the things that you've told them that they didn't know. And you will change so much. But if you give up, if you walk away, if you distract yourself to the point where you can't see what's happening to animals anymore, then you should be depressed because you're doing nothing and you'll look back on your life and think, I could have done something and I didn't. It doesn't take much, you know. I think we can all be activists and we can come at activism from different angles. Some of us will write, some of us will speak, some of us might take part in civil disobedience. And that is what your book, Free the Animals, is about to me. People who are saving animals' lives by bravely confronting those who prefer to do their acts of cruelty in the shadows. What are your thoughts on this? Absolutely, absolutely. And there are as many ways to help as there are human beings. Uh, It's what you eat, it's what you wear, it's what you buy, the cosmetics, the household cleaners. You know, it's no good sending, say, $100 to an animal protection group and then spending $1,000 over a period of time in a store for goods that actually someone else is hurting animals to produce. So those acts are vital and they do sway companies too. Companies listen to what consumers say, and most importantly, they look at what consumers buy. So if you demand something that's cruelty-free, you're going to get it. And if you don't buy it, it's going to drop off in popularity. You know, you can give gifts for baby showers and weddings and birthdays to people to show them something that's wonderful and cruelty-free. And they might then end up doing that themselves and show films. I always say that. You know, a picture's worth a thousand words, a video's worth a million. You, the book, Free the Animals, there's actually, I did a 20-minute section of it. Um, it's on peter.org. You can look at it and show it to others. Have a watch party. Post it on your social. Wake other people up because it can't just be us. We have to keep growing and growing and get kids involved. That's really important. Just put your toe in the water. Take a step. If you're already taking some steps, uh, we can perhaps help uh, with ideas of how many more steps there are to take. So we hope to be a resource at PETA. PETA PETA.org has everything for alternatives to children who are about to dissect or who are told to dissect, how they can properly object and what, what else they can use. We've got library materials, free the animals, and Animal Kind are good to put, and Animal Liberation by Peter Singh are great to put in libraries. You can give people the audio books of animal things for, um, for their holidays. I, I just believe that if we just arm ourselves with materials and leave them where we go, doctor's office, supermarket, gym, um, I've seen people on a train, on a plane, pick up the magazine I've just put in their, the pocket there and spend the flight on the portion of the train journey reading it. And I think for the first time, you now know something about what's going on in labs or what, how your food becomes your food. Not long after this interview with Ingrid Newkirk, 
and Vigo was ordered to release all 4,000 beagles languishing in their facility to rescue organizations around the United States to be adopted. This rescue will go down in the history books as the largest dog rescue ever. Stay tuned for the latest details at PETA.org. Thanks for listening to Dog Research Exposed. Check out our website at www.dogresearchexposed.com for more resources and actions you can take to help dogs in research laboratories today.